Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 12 of Ghosts I Have Seen and Other Psychic Experiences by Violet Tweedale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 12 Peacock's Feathers The Skeleton Hand at Monte Carlo A sea voyage once provided me with a wonderfully lucky experience, inasmuch as it saved me from an extremely bad accident. I was returning quite alone from the east, in a ship crammed full of women and children, most of them soldiers' wives, and families going home to escape the hot weather. Many of them were attended by ayahs. Two days out, we ran into a raging storm, and everything was battened down. Owing to the weather and the excessive crowding, the conditions below soon became very unpleasant, and I asked the captain if I might take possession of the ladies' summer drawing room on the upper deck and close to the bridge, seeing that it would not be used by anyone else for some time to come. He kindly agreed, and I at once settled myself in my airy with a few books and prepared for some days of solitude. But as the storm did not abate, the suffering women and children below claimed my attention. They were confined in an atmosphere which was appalling. They were all terribly ill and utterly helpless. The mothers were unable to attend their children, most of whom were infants, and the ayahs suffered horribly. Having no cabins, they lay groaning on the floors of the corridors, drenched with water as the ship was awash from stem to stern, and tossed hither and thither as she rolled heavily. It was never easy to descend from my perch aloft, but the sufferers had to be aided, and day after day I never knew a dry moment till I lay down at night. So far, the summer drawing room remained fairly watertight in spite of being swept continually by heavy seas, but the noise of the elements was absolutely deafening, and when the captain called upon me, we had to shout in each other's ears. With his connivance, 
I got a shelter rigged up on what appeared to be the only dry spot on board. It was about twelve feet square and walled in with sailcloth, and there the sailors helped to carry a number of tiny children. They were to remain there during the best hours of the day until their mothers and nurses were capable of attending to them once more i took charge at first and found my task no light one the babies did not seem to appreciate my blandishments they cried persistently but luckily their voices were drowned in the roaring of the wind at last a cabin boy chanced to look in and at once sized up the situation he signalled to me that he knew of something that would ease the tension and then he disappeared in five minutes he was back brandishing a large bunch of peacock's feathers these he shook in the face of each infant in turn at the same time making the most hideous grimaces at them it was an anxious moment for me but luckily the effect was electrical the babies suddenly forgot to yell they stiffly maintained their equilibrium and stared in a sort of indignant amazement then gradually as the boy kept going round the circle repeating the process smiles and dimples began to appear and in five minutes more the whole creche was laughing i applied for permission to annex that boy he was indeed a treasure and the joy in the peacock's feathers never palled his gutta-percha face had an infinite variety of expression which he could instantly turn on to suit all occasions it was a fascinating sight to see him going round the group feeding each baby out of the same bottle one of the old-fashioned horrors with a long india-rubber tube and teat those infants who had contemptuously rejected all my offers of nourishment now sat expectantly agape waiting their turn the scene always reminded me of the artificial feeding of fowls by the man who goes round the pens squirting liquid down each gaping throat when we landed at marseilles there was a wonderful parting between the babies and the cabin boy they clung to him to the last and howled dismally when they were carried off by their haggard mothers one night during the height of the storm i was asleep on the fixed red velvet seat running round the walls of the summer drawing-room i lay just under a porthole to which was attached a rope the other end of the rope was tied round my arm to prevent my being thrown to the floor by the rolling of the ship at five o'clock in the morning i was suddenly awakened by hearing my husband's voice shouting in my ear my husband not being on board but in our home in the north of scotland sit up sit up shouted his voice commandingly considerably startled I threw myself into a sitting position, and as I did so, a gigantic wave shattered the porthole, and the heavy fragments of glass fell onto the pillow 
where a second before my face had lain. Of course, the water poured in and over me in volumes, and stopped my wrist watch at 5 a.m., but I had got used to the salt water, and in a few minutes the weary captain had waded in, and was disentangling me from my rope, and congratulating me on my lucky escape. I told him how it was that I had escaped, and he was not in the least skeptical. On the contrary, he said that he had known some curious things happen in his time, for which there was no accounting, but he always kept a black cat on board. Had the safety of his ship not claimed his whole attention, I believe he would have told me some of his experiences, but when at last the weather abated, he was too much in need of rest to be bothered by anyone. My husband had no knowledge of the service he had rendered me. At 5 a.m. that morning, he was asleep at home and had no premonition of danger or any recollection on waking of the role his astral counterpart had undoubtedly played. What is this astral counterpart of man? His soul and spirit dwells in a shroud of flesh, and the feat of getting out of that shroud of flesh at will is the aim of all occultists. It is to the astral world they go. Soul and spirit, encased in the astral sheath, we term the astral body. During sleep or in trance, when the normal physical senses are in abeyance, when the body is unconscious in sleep, the mind continues to act in the realm corresponding to the suggestions given when awake. The world at large is open to the highly developed man, and he will sometimes bring back from his astral plane expeditions memories of what he has seen and heard. In deep slumber, the physical body in healthful repose remains where it has lain down to rest. But the man's higher principles, the astral body encasing the soul and spirit, is invariably withdrawn, and in underdeveloped persons, hovers in the immediate neighborhood. In such cases, the higher principles, the astral body, soul, and spirit of St. Paul's Gospel, are not sufficiently developed to roam and remain near the physical body in a brooding sleep. All cultured persons in the present day have their astral senses fairly well developed and have the power during sleep to go where they will. But as yet, few have the power to retain the memory of it when returning to the body. In some cases, the astral man during sleep is specially attracted to some one point, and he invariably travels towards it. In other cases, he will drift aimlessly about on the astral currents, meeting with experience of all sorts, and with people in a similar condition whom he knows. Is there anything very extraordinary in all this? And is not the condition of deep unconscious sleep a demonstration in itself that the physical consciousness has departed elsewhere, as it is no longer functioning on the physical plane? Clearly, 
it has found another realm in which it can temporarily exercise its activities my husband once had a rather interesting experience of his own on the astral plane he was in bed and asleep on the physical plane and he believes that the time must have been between eleven p m and twelve a m he simply became aware that he was functioning consciously on the astral plane and was intensely interested he found himself in a strange house of medium size and he was floating at the top of a flight of stairs leading to an ordinary entrance hall below at the foot of the stairs hung a lighted lamp and below the lamp stood a man and woman who were apparently exchanging a word or two before bidding each other good night my husband instantly conceived the idea of testing and proving his belief that he was consciously afloat on the astral plane if this belief was true then he ought to be able to pass through the couple standing below without their being in the least aware of his presence in a flash he was downstairs and his belief stood the test his imponderable astral body passed without feeling or shock through two ponderable bodies of flesh and blood and he was out on the other side the excitement of the adventure awakened him and he brought back to the physical plane a clear recollection of all that had happened when one thinks of it the possible presence of total strangers in one's house is rather alarming luckily for us such wanderers rarely bring back to waking consciousness the memory of their nocturnal escapades when we are more advanced in our other side knowledge we will doubtless refrain from intruding upon the privacy of our neighbors dwellings and confine our attentions to realms which are free to all it is curious how constantly one hears of the ghosts of priests and monks being seen i have not met any one yet who has encountered the wraith of an anglican parson or a nonconformist preacher i wonder why i presume the latter do sometimes walk once upon a time when we were in rome my husband and i went to keep an appointment with monsignor stanor who was a great celebrity and an extremely handsome and charming man we were being shown upstairs by a servant and the hour was eleven o'clock on a sunny spring day i was walking first my husband following and at the top of the stairs coming slowly downward was an old priest carrying a huge portfolio under which he seemed to be staggering he passed the servant and as he neared me i noticed that the cassock which he wore was torn in great rents in several places his gray hair hung on his shoulders though his crown was shaven and his face was the color of old ivory i moved slightly to give him and his burden room to pass and as he did so our eyes met his were very strange 
They were exactly like points of live flame. Something about his whole presence struck me as so weird that I turned involuntarily and looked back. As I did so, I saw my husband walk straight through him. My husband saw nothing. Then I knew and understood. I did not mention this incident to Monsignor Stonor, but some time after, I met his sister, Viscountess Clifton, at Monte Carlo. She was an intimate friend of mine, and one day, when an opportunity offered, I told her the little story, and asked her if she had ever met with anything of the sort herself. She replied that, personally, she had not, but she had heard that several people encountered at different times the old priest in her brother's room, though he himself had seen nothing of this apparition. Lady Clifton enjoyed nothing more than a little flutter at the tables. She never missed a single day during her long sojourns at Monte Carlo. Everyone knows that the Anglican churchgoers in the Principality hurry from church to gaming rooms in order to stake on the numbers of the hymns. Lady Clifton used also to hurry from Mass with any numbers she had caught up, and she considered Sunday her lucky day. Suddenly, her luck changed. She told me that on the previous Sunday, she had just pulled off a nice little coup and was about to grasp it when, to her horror, she saw a skeleton hand stretched forth. Before she could collect her scattered senses, the skeleton hand had raked in her gold. Where that gold had gone to worried and puzzled her dreadfully. So it did me. I never heard the last of it. She could not get over her loss. It was no use suggesting that the hand had belonged to one of the emaciated harpies who prey upon the unwary. Lady Clifton knew all about them and was a match for the whole gang. Had they attacked her, she insisted that the hand that grasped her gold had neither skin nor flesh upon it, and that she had seen the two bare arm bones from wrist to elbow. We compromised on the suggestion of a third party, that it must have been the devil himself, and that the heat he is supposed to engender had melted the gold entirely away. Monte Carlo is a very interesting place for the clairvoyant to be in, more especially if her vision extends to seeing auras. Perhaps nowhere on earth are the basest human passions more swiftly and violently aroused, and several times, when some tragedy was being enacted, or some enormous coup was being brought off, I had been unable to see details, because they were hidden within a dense envelope of dark crimson clouds. In the rooms, a crowd collects swiftly, and from a hundred human auras, all gathered in one compact mass, stream forth emanations of the basest description. Cupidity, envy, revenge, lust of the vilest, despair, ruin, death. 
I remember being met one night by a friend in the atrium who was very excited. Hurry up, she cried. The double duchess has broken the bank and is still playing. I went into the gambling rooms and looked for the table at which the Duchess of Devonshire was staking. I knew she would attract a big crowd if she was winning. I found the table easily enough, not because it was surrounded by a crowd of people, but because it was hidden by a dark and dense crimson fog. With patience, I got through this fog and watched the handsome Duchess of Devonshire, formerly Duchess of Manchester, and born a Hanoverian, playing with a great quantity of gold, and a pile of thousand-franc notes. By bending low down, almost level with the table, I found I got completely out of the fog, and could see clearly underneath it. One night, there was a rush outside, and a huge ring formed to watch a scrap taking place between two celebrated members of La Haute Coquetterie de Paris. They were fighting with formidable hatpins, and I understood that the prey they fought over was Leopold, King of the Belgians. I ran with the crowd, the gambling rooms emptied in a twinkling, for the combat took place in the casino square. I squeezed through the excited mob till I got behind the backers of both parties, who were holding the ring and defying the police. It was a wonderful sight to witness the combined playing of flaming red auras, shot through with vivid flashes like lightning and blazing jewels. The duel ended with a few scratches, much tearing of gorgeous raiment and disheveled hair. How interesting it was to the mystic to feel the psychology of that crowd and see the thin veneer of civilization stripped off, leaving nothing but the human tiger and ape. Both ladies were eventually led off the arena by the police, not be it understood to the police station, but to their own sumptuous apartments. All the time, they shrieked and chattered like infuriated macaws, and between the shrieks, they administered resounding smacks upon the cheeks of their patient escort. Monte Carlo was a wonderful place in those days, in which to study human nature at its best and worst. In latter years, it has become meretricious and shabby, and the old magnificence is seen no more. Fifteen to twenty years ago, all that was greatest in Europe, Asia, and the Americas congregated there, and crowned heads mingled freely with the scum of the earth. Constant habitues were the Duchess of Devonshire and her son, Lord Charles Montague, the Duchess of Montrose, known to the ring at Newmarket as Bob's, and always the personification to listen to and look at of a Thames bargee, Leopold of Belgium, Ferdinand of Bulgaria, Grand Dukes of Russia, Potentates of India, 
all hobnobbing together and gambling heavily. I often wonder now what has befallen those brilliant stars of the half-world firmament, Emmeline d'Alençon, with her bobbed hair and her passionate love of animals and birds, the demure Jeanne Ray, who came out every morning to her garden gate and distributed food to the crowd of paupers and cripples. I have seen peasants kiss the hem of her dress as she walked on an afternoon along the promenade des Anglais, the beautiful soulless Melold, the fierce stately Otero, and many others who thought nothing of wearing fifty to a hundred thousand pounds worth of jewels on one evening. Where are they now? If living, they are old. Old, a word more dreaded by their class than death. End of chapter 12. Peacock's Feathers. The Skeleton Hand at Monte Carlo. Read by Aaron Zimmerman.